Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, and have we got a treat for you today. Proper end-of-the-week listening. We look back on the history of party political broadcast. The new year, we've seen the new ones from Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. They're not that imaginative, to be honest, compared to some of the ones we've seen in the past. We're going to hear from Moise Saatchi, long-serving Tory ad man, and Mark Lucas, who worked on some of the big ones of the new Labour years. Really fascinating chat uh, coming up with them and uh, a trip down memory lane as well. First, though, as ever, we kick off with the columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, I'm delighted today's uh, columnist. Joining me are Katie Balls, political editor of The Spectator, writer for The Times today. Morning, Katie. Morning. And we've got Jimmy McLaughlin, uh, former advisor in number 10 on business, uh, now presents a bi- uh, podcast called Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Morning, Jimmy. Morning, Matt. Nice to have you both uh, with us. Uh, right, let's start with um, uh, Rishi Sunak. Uh, I want to sort of zoom out a little bit and try to work out what's his... What's the plan, to quote, what's the plan, to quote uh, Jeremy Hunt from earlier on in the week. So he was in Morecambe yesterday, Rishi Sunak, suggesting the public understands why he can't cut taxes, uh, even if it, maybe his colleagues don't, saying the people aren't idiots. I'm, I'm a Conservative. I want to cut your taxes. Of course I do, right? Because you all work incredibly hard and I want you to keep more of your money so you can spend it on the stuff that you want to, right? That's what I want to deliver. I wish I could do that tomorrow, quite frankly. But the reason we can't is because of all the reasons you know, right? You're not, you're not idiots. You know what's happened, right? We had, a, we had a massive pandemic for two years. We had to shut the country down, do a bunch of extraordinary things. That didn't come cheap. And then we've got this war going on, which is having an enormous impact on inflation and interest rates. So, only an idiot with him who could cut taxes now. So this is him standing up to his party on the right saying, uh, you know, we can't do that now. He's not going to capitulate. And yet on everything else, Katie, online reform bill, planning, wind farms, he does end up capitulating. What, what, what sort of leader is Rishi Sunak? Well, I think he's very aware that he doesn't really have a mandate, whether that is uh, from the public or from the Tory membership even. And even in terms of MPs, uh, it was second time lucky. And he got the most you know, MPs in the first round in the first contest, but then not spent to Liz Truss after. Um, so he's been trying to govern a coalition of MPs. And I think that means on legislation, they try and avoid conflict. I do think on the economy, it's probably where he has the strongest views that he's not going to bend. But I think there is a question as 
it seems to imply that he that Rishi Sunak believes members of the new Tory growth group, which has many trustites and it may be idiots. And I think in terms of party management, where they want to go softly, softly, he might regret at least the phrasing around this. Um, I do also wonder if part of the reason Rishi Sunak's so intent that we all go and study maths for a bit longer is he's getting very sick of trying to explain to colleagues um, you know, who want lots more money in their constituency, but also lots of tax cuts, um, how the two are linked. And Jimmy, when you were an advisor on business in uh, in number 10, um, presumably you had this, a sort of similar problem. You had lots of business people telling you, well, this is what we want. Well, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor have to square that with what the public wants, what Tory MPs want, and, you know, maybe fourth on this list, reality. Yes, quite. The thing that underpins everything. I think the the idiot's comment, uh, you know, listening to the clip there, I don't think it's something that was particularly planned. That is something that I imagine the Prime Minister has kind of said on the hoof. And I think actually with the public, I think that plain language speaking can go down quite well, actually. Um, but I agree with what Katie was saying. From a party management standpoint, you know, it, it is difficult, particularly in the week where this new coalition has been set up. So I think there is a, a challenge for that. Politics is all about compromise and all these different competing areas that people want and, you know, sort of stakeholders, as it were. It makes the job very difficult when you're trying to balance all these things, particularly with the economic challenge that we're facing at the moment. Although, you know, interesting news from the Bank of England today sort of saying that it looks like it might not be as bad as feared. And that will mean there will be a whole wave of people, you know, wanting to apply for various things, as we've seen with levelling up fund this week as well. So it, it's always a challenge for a Prime Minister to to balance off these different requests. And I suppose actually what you've also got is uh, newspapers. Um, I think the, the, the Mail and the Express have particularly latched on to, like you said, slightly taking that idiot's quote out of context to fire up the right to then get uh, terribly cross about it. I suppose, um, Katie, the other thing is when he says, I wish I could do that tomorrow, I want to cut your taxes, I wish I could do that tomorrow, quite funny, but the reason we can't is because of all the reasons you know, you're not idiots, you know what's happened. Obviously, there were global factors, which can't be told about. Another one of those things of what happened is the Liz Truss factor. And it seems quite extraordinary that this week we got this new group being launched, uh, of which, which seems to be sort of the Truscateers uh, getting the old gang back together to try and remake the case for all the things that they tried to do last time with, with the results. As Swishy Sinek says, you're not idiots, you know what happened. Yeah, and I think ultimately you had a period of silence or relative silence, I think, from the Trussites um, because of the circumstances of the of, of her departure from 10 Downing Street, the fact that Rishi Sunak came in and had to clear that all up. I saw some pieces today saying, you know, is Rishi Sunak's honeymoon over? And I was like, what what type of honeymoon um, is a prime minister? It's when, when you come in and the first thing you're trying to do is trying to calm the markets and then put through some quite horrible measures on tax rises and get your party to back them. Um, but I think there is a problem in the sense that lots of people will say, well, I don't think Liz Trust per se is the issue in terms of, no one is talking about Liz Truss coming back in the way they talk about Boris Johnson. But in a way, what's more dangerous to Rishi Sunak is there is a school of thought in the Tory party, which is very free market, low tax. And it means that 
every time they see something such as, you know, the economy, uh, you know, slightly better news, they say, well, there's now space to do this. And well, Rishi Sunak, you always say this. And that isn't just a couple of people who served in this trust's cabinet. There's a reason she had some momentum behind her and the membership liked her. And therefore, it's a tricky balancing act to say you're listening to their concerns, but you're going to go a lot more slowly than they would want. And that's why I think probably the idiot's comment, he he did misspeak. It's probably what Rishi Sunak thinks, um, but I, I don't think his, his press team would have said that that is how you're going to deal with these people. Um, he's going to have to listen to them while not actually doing everything they say. And almost certainly, lots of the people are now very cross about being called an idiot, haven't seen or read the quote, don't plan to find out, and they just yeah. now think they've been called an idiot. Well, let's turn attention to the other, the, the, the other side then. While Rishi Sunak was uh, jetting around uh, northern England, uh, Keir Starmer was jetting off to Davos. Now, I'm quite intrigued as to what this sort of tells us about you, you know, maybe Boy, I was thinking Boris Johnson might have mocked Keir Starmer for doing that, calling him a, you know, elitist citizen of nowhere. Slightly harder, possibly, for Rishi Sunak to make that case. What does this tell us about the Labour Party's relationship with with big multinational business and just their general sense of self confidence? Do you think, Jimmy, that he felt able to go to Davos? He's there for a couple of days, rubbing shoulders with some of the wealthiest people in the world, essentially. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, it is a very useful business engagement thing to do for the Labour Party or for senior government ministers to go. You know, you can do a huge amount and meet a huge amount of people all in one space. So there is definitely a upside to going to Davos. I think you're right. It shows Starmer is confident with business. And, you know, they have been doing a lot, in fairness to them, over the last couple of months. You know, they've had the chairman of Tesco come out and sort of say that, you know, Labour is listening to business and business is listening as well. So it's all quite sort of positive. And, you know, Rachel Reeves is also in the Times today with a comment piece on the business pages talking about what Labour wants to do. So I think it's works quite well for Starmer to, to go. I don't think anyone's not going to vote for Keir Starmer because he went to Davos it doesn't really sort of fit into kind of a stereotype that Rishi Sunak might struggle with if he were to go with that. So it seems to have been something that's worked quite well for the Labour Party and they seem to have got good coverage out of it. So did you did you go when you were in number 10? Yes, yes, we went with uh, Theresa May and there was always a bit of a debate about whether to go or not. But it's also quite useful from a political leader's point of view because obviously there were a lot there. I remember we had a meeting with Donald Trump and Macron, etc. Oh, so it's yeah. a, a very productive use of, of kind of prime minister's uh, time to to go and, and see all these people and see lots of international investors in the UK as well. So it's, it is it is good if, if you know prime ministers can make the time to go. Is it a bit? I've 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 not been the most glamorous thing I've been to is sort of Tory party conference in Birmingham. Um, what's it actually like? Is it is it just a lot of because presumably status is a massive issue because everybody there is used to being the most important person in every room they go into. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, the, the similarities with party conference are are, are quite striking actually in terms of uh lots of things um but it, you know you're sort of up in the in the Davos hills and sort of struggling to get from meeting to meeting because of all the snow and and so on and the amount of security guards that are, are there from all uh walks of life but it's quite important to to go see the international investors but it is a crazy few days in terms of the amount of meetings that are that are put in and you have all these sort of brush buys with business leaders and, and so on so it's quite it's quite useful i mean i remember when we went with Theresa may we saw 
you know, sort of the chief exec of Goldman Sachs. Um, you know, we saw Sheryl Sandberg, who was very senior at Facebook at the time. And so you're having a lot of these sort of, you know, 10, 15 minute meetings and sort of particular trying to get what we were doing with Brexit across to them as well was quite important because that wasn't always very easy to do in public, but actually in those areas it was much easier to do. It's interesting that. What do you make, um, uh, Katie, the, the sort of Keir Starmer, it feels like, again, these end of the week, just nudging along again, this sort of sense of inevitability of him winning the next election. Now, when we're having a row about the GP contracts with both streeting, the assumption of that is we're now talking about how much it's going to cost when Labour do it. Uh, we're talking about um, Keir Starmer being closer to business when he becomes Prime Minister. There's a story on front of the one of the papers today, The Eye. Where's that gone? Yeah, you uh, want you want Starmer to become British PM. There, there's a sort of there's a sense of inev inevitability taking hold, which is you know it's that is like absolute gold dust for leader of the opposition. Yeah, I was speaking to a cabinet minister about this, and they were making the point that they felt that it flipped in the way it, it did, you know, before David Cameron, where all of a sudden there's lots more, more interviews with Labour. Um, in that case, it would have been the Tories, of course, you know, appearing in these places, and it's and there is just a, a buzz. Um, I think on the Davos trip. It makes sense for Keir Starmer to go and for Rishi Sunak to stay as far away as possible, given his biggest weakness is the sense that he is out of touch and a member of the global elite. Whereas Rish, um, Keir Starmer wants to look pro-business, but also prime ministerial. And you get that from meeting with leaders. I did look at that iFront page this morning, though, which you, know, you want Starmer to become British PM and a big photo of Keir Starmer at Davos. And I, I thought, I don't think that is the dream uh, front page for <laughs> Labour. Um, <laughs> there is a balancing act here and then I saw that Keir Starmer had an interview with Emily Maitlis on her podcast said that he'd rather be he, he prefers Davos to Westminster and I thought okay there is there is like being a little bit you know punchy and getting out there and there's also just stepping too much into the sense that you I think it's, in a way it's clever that Labour are going on the offensive and taking some bold positions. I think the risk is 18 months before an election, they actually overdo it. Yeah, I thought I thought when asked Westminster or Davos, he should have said. <laughs> he, it's because he launched an attack on Westminster. It's always a lot of people arguing. It's good to get out and talk to people. It's, like, it's good to get out and talk to people in a shopping centre somewhere, not yeah. in a in a, a elitist ski resort. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, so yeah. The, 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 the EU wants Starmer to become British PM. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see that <laughs> that cropped up in the Daily Mail. I'm obsessed with what happened overnight when uh, Andy Murray played an extraordinary game of tennis, went on to win in his second round game in the Australian Open. But they were playing until, what, three, four o'clock in the morning and it wasn't even allowed a loo break at the end of the fourth set. Uh, this is what he was saying when he speaking to the umpire. Do you know something? I respect the rule. It's so disrespectful that the tournament has us out here until 3 4 o'clock in the morning and we're not allowed to go and take a It's a joke. It is a joke. And you know it as well. It's disrespectful. It's disrespectful to you. It's disrespectful to the ball children. It's disrespectful to the players. And we're not allowed to go to the toilet. So that was Andy Murray uh, in Australia. Let's speak to Barry Cowan. Um, because, Barry, I just want to... Why can't he go to the toilet? I mean, we'll talk in a minute about why he's doing so well, which is obviously excellent news. Why is he not allowed to go to the toilet? I've certainly commentated on loads of Murray's matches and seen what... An, not only do we know he's an incredible tennis player, incredible fighter, but I think what he's done this week is nothing short of extraordinary. Uh, and last night was one of the, the matches. 
And it's sort of ironic, actually, that he's now got to play in the next next round. Bautista Agut, who it was four years ago, Australia, after he lost to the Spaniard, that, that we thought his career was coming to an end. That's the positive. Now, let's get on to the talking point. I mean, honestly, my sport, it's for me, it's my sport. So I'm always going to be biased. It is it's the greatest sport. But it doesn't half shoot itself in the foot over and over again. And and I think last night, as Andy touched on it, that it's absolutely ridiculous for them to be playing that late. And and the toilet the toilet break rule. Can I just run through you what the rules are? Yeah, please. That's what I'm, yeah, uh, I mean. That's I, what I, what I mean. I think I think they're absolute nonsense. By the way, so in a best of three set match, you're only allowed one toilet break. In a best of five set match, you're allowed two toilet breaks. But you're only allowed the the second one at the end of the third set. So you cannot have one at the end of the fourth set. Now, I'm sort of puzzled to why that is the case. But then you'll watch matches, like I watched a match this morning, where a player just calls a medical timeout after the first game of the fifth set. And that's six minutes, seven minutes. So, so, what, so what's, so what's often, the logic of this? Is it is it so that basically every time someone's uh, you know, struggling and their opponent is on top, they could say, oh, I'm going to have a loo break and you sort of take all the heat out of it and gather your thoughts and get it going. What you don't want is someone going to the loo after every uh, after every game. I mean, yes, that, that was what I was brought in. So obviously it was back in 2021 uh, and it's been going in, on in sport for, for, for a long time. And if you go to junior tournaments, what, what, do, what do players do? I mean, even as young as 11 or 12, Matt, they lose a set. They'll go to the loo break. Now, at, at the Arthur at the Rod Laver Arena, the, the 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 loo is just just through the 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 exit. If if you're playing on court court twelve at a junior tournament, can you imagine how long that takes. But the 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 rule was initially brought in at the beginning of 2022 because at the U.S. Open in 2021, Sitsipas was playing Murray, and he took forever for a loo break. So they're trying to speed it up. They're trying to make it fair. Now, my my opinion on it is I think the, you they, they restrict the to, the loo breaks to to maybe two over a best of five set yeah. match. But they shouldn't tell you, oh, you can only take the last one after the third set. And I also think in that should be a medical timeout. So maybe you can only have one or two delays in a match so you're not stopping all the time let me you're bring not it... stop and then and then just one other thing and then if you then are unfortunate that then you have to take another medical timeout or a loop break then you are deducted points uh, let's bring in um the panel uh katie and uh jimmy now, katie the, when i was thinking about this i remember do you remember david cameron apparently did a thing of like he used to not go to the toilet if he had a big speech he claimed that he got a deal in brussels once because of it by not going to the loo because it sort of pumped him up yeah, I do vaguely. Um, yeah, I was reading about this. I've seen that Andy Murray in the past has complained about other players taking quite long toilet breaks. Um, so there seems there's quite a lot of suspicion around how, <laughs> how the players use them. But it did seem pretty cruel yesterday, um, given the, the time of day and how long it all gone on for. What do you think, Jimmy? Well, I just think it's a reminder that Andy Murray is getting older and like a lot of men, he'll have to start going to the toilet at 3am a lot more. But I suppose the difference is with most men is they're not in the middle of a five-set uh, Australian no, just a bit of the night, normally. Katie Balls and Jimmy McLaughlin there and you can catch Katie's uh, piece online right now. Go to thetimes.co.uk. 
Right up next is the history of party political broadcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The now follows a party political broadcast on behalf Party Political Broadcast. Yes, a new year means a new slate of Party Political Broadcast. Those short films that TV channels have to show whether there's anyone watching or not. Designed to give political parties each a fair crack at the whip by appealing to viewers at home. So last week we had Rishi Sunak surrounded by Union Jack flags and copyright-free music. The government's priorities are your priorities. The people's priorities. And this week, Keir Starmer apparently being interviewed just off camera by no one. I grew up in a pebble dash semi. I'm sharing a bedroom with my brother, a bunk bed bedroom with my brother. My dad was a toolmaker and worked in a factory all his life. In fact, party political broadcasts are almost 100 years old, having first been introduced to the general election of 1924, when each party leader had 20 minutes. Back then, the Labour Prime Minister, Ramsay MacDonald, Conservative Stanley Baldwin and Herbert Asquith of the Liberal Party each made a speech unedited. The Labour minority government was defeated, with the Conservatives winning a landslide with a majority of 209. Back when it had a monopoly on broadcasting, the BBC actually used to make the broadcasts for the parties, offering up studios, equipment and staff. The first televised party political broadcast was in 1951, when Viscount Samuel, the Liberal leader, spoke directly into the camera for 15 minutes straight and still managed to run out of time. Cabinet Minister Sir Hartley Shawcross spoke for Labour and Conservative Deputy Leader Anthony Eden spoke for the opposition. Well, I would just like to say first that as an interviewer and as what I hope you will believe to be an unbiased member of the electorate, I'm most grateful to Mr Anthony Eden for inviting me to cross-question him on the present political issues. I would like, too, to feel that I am asking, so far as possible, 
those questions which you yourselves would like to ask in my place. Well now, Mr. Eden, with your very considerable experience of foreign affairs, it's quite obvious that I should start by asking you something about the international situation today, or perhaps you would prefer to talk about home. Which shall it be? Well, you know, during this election, I found... In the election that followed, the Tories under Winston Churchill went on to oust Labour, winning a slim majority of 17 seats. By the end of the decade, party political broadcaster got slicker and snappier. This one from 1959 was billed on screen as a campaign report from Labour Radio and TV Operations Room in London, fronted by Tony Benn, who's credited with transforming the staid model of party political broadcast. This election is hotting up. The Tories are really badly shaken by the evidence of a Labour swing everywhere, and it's no wonder that they're lashing out. Tonight, we are going to examine their credentials, their record, their promises, and their performance. By 1970, they were almost unrecognisable from those early speeches to camera, like this one from Labour called Political Challenge. Fronted by Bernard Donoghue, who went on to be an advisor to Howard Wilson and Jim Callaghan, it bore a lot of similarities to University Challenge. This is a quiz programme and we have two teams competing who have been selected by an entirely independent research organisation. One team is of young, new voters who have never voted before at a general election. The others, the rest, have voted before. Sometimes the mixture of politics and showbiz went a bit too far. In 1972, the Liberal Party got their leader to be interviewed question time style by Jimmy Savile. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome indeed to this party political broadcast with a difference, if only the fact that I'm here for a start, but I am here to see fair play speech and it's the Liberal Party that have asked me to come along together with lots of good friends here in the audience from all walks of life and the object of the exercise is that they are going to put questions to Mr Jeremy Thorpe. By the end of the decade, campaigning was increasingly negative. In 1979, Margaret Thatcher made a bid for power with a party political broadcast based on a line attributed to the Labour Prime Minister, Jim Callaghan. Crisis? What crisis? Crisis? What crisis? Crisis? What crisis? Did you or did you not want better schooling for your children? Guilty. Now, did you or did you not want to buy your own home? Guilty. In 1987, Kinnock the Movie was a ten-minute biopic by Hugh Hudson, the director of the Oscar-winning Chariots of Fire. It focused on Labour leader Neil Kinnock as a family man, meeting old ladies for cups of tea or looking wistfully out to sea, rather than focusing on Labour's policies, which were still much more left-wing than the British public could stomach. The first Kinnock in a thousand generations to be able to get the university. Why is Glenys the first woman in her family in a thousand generations to be able to get the university? Was it because all our predecessors were thick? Did they lack talent? Those people who could sing and play 
and recite and write poetry. Artistically brilliant, no doubt, but Labour went on to lose the 87 election. Five years later, the Conservatives tried the same trick with John Major, the movie. Directed by John Schlesinger, the Oscar-winning director of Midnight Cowboy, it took him on a wistful tour of his Brixton childhood home. When I was in my mid-teens, we moved to Burton Road. Where you see the house ahead, with the two white arches, immediately opposite there, that is where we lived. Now, is it still there? It is. It is. It's still there. It's still there. It's hardly changed. It wasn't all positive, though. In the same election, the Conservatives launched a direct attack on what it called Labour's tax bombshell. To pay for Labour's promises, the average taxpayer would end up being hit by an extra £1,000 tax bill. While Labour went with Jennifer's Ear, a video soundtrack only by music, contrasting two young girls with earache, one of whom could go private, and the other just had to wait. Someone will wait eternally. In 1997, Labour produced a film called Land of Hope and Glory. It was just Elgar playing over footage of the Conservative Party conference with captions saying, just imagine what would happen if the Tories got in again, or just imagine what the Tories would do with another five years. Well, a huge row blew up, and as a result, the rules were changed so that parties now cannot use moving footage of political opponents, but they are allowed to use undistorted stills. So how do you navigate all those rules and produce something memorable without being embarrassing, powerful, without landing yourself in hot water? So I'm now joined uh, by Mark Lucas, who worked on Labour Party political broadcasts in 1997, 2001, 2005, and the slightly less successful uh, 2010. Hi, Mark. Hi, thanks very much for that introduction. They all good <laughs> in my opinion, but there we are. <laughs> uh, good to have you with us. And Maurice Sarchi, Lord Sarchi, of course, a long-time Conservative Party advertising uh, guru over, what, the best part of half a century, Maurice? If you insist on reminding me, yes. <laughs> what was the first party political broadcast you worked on, Morris, that you, you can remember? Uh, because they've changed so much. I, I truly don't remember, but all of the work that we did with the Conservative Party has um, landed me in a situation in which I'm afraid my contribution to British politics is entirely negative. <laughs> Professor David Butler said to me, to my face, you, Morris Sarchi, are personally responsible for reducing all British elections to negative campaigning. And well, that was very hard to take, but it's also completely true. <laughs> our, approach to, our approach to party political broadcast or any other form of election campaigning was, um, and still is, entirely negative and that's because there was sort of in essence two sorts of party political broadcasts there's the hopey changey one where maybe the party leader walks around in the sunshine high-fiving members of the public and talking about how how lovely things are going to be if they're in number 10 after the election and then there's the don't put the other lot in 
everything will collapse. You'll all be homeless. There'll be rats on the streets and everything will be a nightmare. And you you possibly specialised more in the latter. Mark, in the uh, sort of the, the new Labour years, you were a yeah. bit more hopey changey, weren't you? Especially in 1997. Well, look, I'm in, in danger of uh, agreeing with Morris in a way because, yeah, the most effective ads in general that we did were full-on attacks. And I don't think we ever did an ad where we didn't say afterwards, God, I wish we'd gone a bit further. So, you know, I'm fully aligned with that. But in, in 97 in particular, we were doing a slightly different thing or an additional thing. I mean, look, for an opposition, where do you want to get to? You, you ideally want to get to change without risk, don't you? Because risky change doesn't sound all that good to anyone. And a change that's basically the same isn't that appealing. And so all of the ads that we did in 97 in particular had a sort of theatre to them and a kind of feel and a vibe to them. I mean, we had an ad with a Pete Postlethwaite turned into an angel, you know, replete with wings. And we had another one where a bulldog, you know, um, marches off to a brighter future. So we tried to be, there was a sense of theatre to them. But behind that, we're actually saying, you know, look, we're okay, we're safe, you can trust us. In a funny way, because the the party broadcast, there's been a demise in the sense that the viewing figures are down, they're marginalised, you know, went in 97 they're all on the telly at the same time. You couldn't avoid them unless you sort of left the room. And now they're much more easily avoidable. Although I suppose actually one of the things that they now, they now live on on social media and get reshared and that sort of thing. So, so they might be viewed less on the telly, but they, they get sort of legs elsewhere. Um, I, wonder, I want to ask you both for sort of the, the, the ads that you're, the party political broadcast you're most proud of and the one you'd rather we... We forgot. Let's start with you first of all, Morris. They're all all our work was magnificent, and we were <laughs> we were we were. By the way, if you'd like further criticism of myself, you see how humble I am. We were also greatly criticised, apart from all this negative campaigning. We were also, which ruined British politics. I'm told. We were also criticised for cheap sloganising. In other words, treating people like morons by only giving them three words. I don't accept that either. I think that's also for me a source of a source of pride, on the basis that, so far as I can tell, the most powerful rallying cries in history that changed the world are very simple and to the point. For example, your country needs you. No taxation without representation. One man, one vote. There was nothing complicated, was there, about liberté, égalité, fraternité. <laughs> and by the way, in case you're interested in the Ten Commandments, the average length of the Ten Commandments is seven words. What about you, Mark? Is it the Pete Postlethwaite one? I mean, the Pete Postlethwaite one was amazing. Poor, poor old Pete. He was drunk through the whole shoot, by the way. And uh, Stephen Frears and I had to basically get on our knees and beg him to leave the caravan to actually do the scene. He had a sort of last minute, as angels sort of do, a last minute worry about New Labour and whether it was all real, which we were fortunately able to reassure him that it all completely was. So that that was a memorable one. But the one I'd pick, if I had to pick one, I think was the Bulldog one. So we we cast the Bulldog, Tony Blair speaks, poor old British Bulldog uh, has been, you know, let down by the Tories uh, for many years. What You know, here's Tony speak, gets excited and gets up and walks off towards a great future. And the reason why I remember it is not so much the film, but the press conference that followed it. Because on the morning of it, Peter Mandelson came up to me and said, Mark, I think I think I would like to have the dog with me for the press conference. So 
Really? Yeah. So it's the first dog and politician press conference, certainly of that campaign. So I had to drive off and get this bloomin' dog that we'd used in the film, which I managed to do, drive it back to Millbank. And there were 300 journalists outside waiting for this moment. We, we actually drive in with a hood over the dog so that it's like sort of paparazzi style that they didn't get a photo of it in advance. Peter walks out with the dog. It's like one of those more sort of surreal moments of a campaign. And uh, the owner just turns to me and says, there's something I should have said earlier. And I went, oh, my God, what is it? You know, and he went, well, I am really worried. British Bulldogs are bred with a congenital heart disease. And my one is really prone to heart attacks. So the one thing I can't do is let him have any stress. And this was revealed as Peter's walking out to the, you know, it was front page of the Sun, 300 media out there. And so I've just occasionally wake up in the middle of the night with this image of a, a heart attack dog, you know, with the four paws up in the air and Peter trying to resuscitate it as the sort of image of the campaign. And um, so I'll never forget that because it got so much media. It was claiming a British icon, but also for me, it was, you know, kind of terrifying really as an experience. In fact, Mark, I do know a bit about the bulldog because of a conversation I had a few years ago with Philip Webster, former Times political editor, and James Landell, who was on the Times, is now at the BBC. Tory party at the time was in total disarray and they got this lion uh, that they, they they campaigned with a lion. Uh, they used it as a symbol, the symbol of the lion. And the, the pit, they, they used this picture of a lion in all kinds of um, broadcasts and things. And uh, one of our colleagues who's not here today but who was with us discovered that the lion was gay do you remember the next <laughs> the other animal was um uh the labor party got a, a bulldog um, called, cool. called buster uh who was there to, which they used for some of their promotional material which was designed to sort of show how patriotic they were because of course sort of foreign affairs was always seen as one of labor's weak points so they wanted to try and sort of tickle that up so peter manson arranged for this this dog uh, to be photographed, um, but it subsequently turned out that the um, the the nether regions of this dog had been airbrushed out <laughs> for fear of offending the voters. Yeah. Yes. Um, which caused a bit of fun. So, Mark, do you remember all of that? Yeah, there were two rumours actually. The first rumour that probably Morris put out was that the British bulldog was actually German and was called Fritz, uh, and we had to go around and reassure people that wasn't the case. And then the second rumour was that. Peter had objected to the size and the movement of the poor bulldog's uh, dangly bits because it was distracting from what Tony said and therefore ordered that they be airbrushed out. Uh, and that rumour was completely true. Yeah, that was absolutely true. That was Mark Lucas, who worked on Labour Party political broadcasts in 1997, 2001, 2005 and 2010. And Moise Saatchi, Lord Saatchi, spent half a century advising the Conservative government his book, Do Not Resuscitate, The Life and Afterlife of Moise Saatchi, is out now. Here he is giving it the sales pitch. It reveals the biggest secret of all time. Why some people go to heaven and others go to hell. And I was able to um, perform this miracle because after my death, when I arrived, as one does, at the gates of heaven, seeking entry to heaven... It was um, worse than arriving at Heathrow. Ever the ad man. So those were the spin doctors working for the political parties, but for the people actually making the film, it could be even trickier. Parties often want normal, hard-working families rather than politicians behind a desk. But it could be tricky to keep the public on message. 
Nick Frost is a TV producer and director of the production company Middle Table. He's worked on multiple political broadcasts for different parties and referendum campaigns. So, Nick, explain the pitfalls that you can face when you start involving real people. Well, part of the problem with finding real people is that real people have real problems. And what you'd ideally do in this sense is get a sense of who you should be interviewing in the first place and whether they have any problematic backgrounds. But that doesn't always happen. In the middle of an election cycle, there's a million things happening at once. So everything sort of happens at the same time. We were on the way back from a filming in a factory in, in South Wales once, really pleased with it. We'd, it was going to be a big part of this particular broadcast of this particular film. And uh, we'd film this bunch of workers all getting on with their lives, you know, to, working together and it was a really good and we were in the car on the way back we got a call from headquarters saying did you film such and such a person and we said well yes actually they were sort of in most of the shots and they said unfortunately we've been doing some background checks on them and we can't use them because they've got convictions related to paedophilia so that was out of the window straight away onto finding a new factory wow and i suppose that is the pitfall because that's exactly the sort of thing that journalists like me would do is immediately start working out well who are all these people there's the political party there's maybe the agency they're using there's you know, the spin doctor on the ground, there's the people looking after the actors or the members of the public. The te- there must be a lot of tension there. And you're just trying to get on and do the thing that you think would be good, while loads of people who don't normally make films are telling you what they want instead. You know, there was one particular occasion we were working with a party and they'd been working with a big agency throughout the campaign. And the relationship had been breaking down and down and down to the point where they were sort of very annoyed with each other. And we were on one particular shoot that had actually been the idea of the of the agency um, sitting across the table for them and be uh, one of the executives asked me to go and get a sandwich for him and I didn't mind I was going out to get lunch anyway got them a sandwich and, and, and handed it over somehow this got back to the comms team at the party and they said um, they shouldn't be asking you to do this you're not their footman you know you you are a production team this is it and then they forbade the agency from dealing with us directly so we have this ridiculous situation of us sitting at a table at the shoot across the people the execs from this agency and they weren't allowed to speak to us they had to send a message back to the headquarters who then may or may not pass that message on back to us common sense told in the end that we ended up sort of you know working things out but gives you an idea of the the, the tension and the uh the, the frustrations that can set in and obviously months in advance people will know that these the, they've got a slot on it's on bbc one it's five to seven um how long in advance are you doing that or is it like right down to the wire as the campaign rolls on everything goes off the rails and you'll you know right up to the wire and even beyond it and you know you'll push and push and push that back that uh, deadline back I remember one particular time we were in the post-production suite and, you know, we were several days past the deadline. We were being harangued by the uh, by the broadcasters. Where is it? Where's it gone? And we were just about to send it to them. And I got a phone call from, from headquarters again. Can we change a shot? So what do you, which one do you want to change? This is, this is a shot that's been in since the beginning. It was a shot of a worker who'd taken out a pen and they'd given the pen a shake to get the ink flowing. But it was seen within the party headquarters that this could be construed as a a, a rude hand gesture and that it could be clipped up by someone you know opposite the party and used on social media to say here's what this person thinks of this particular party can we change the shot and so we had to go back find the rushes change the shot go through the process you know all the while the broadcast on the phone it gives you an idea of the paranoia i think that sets in as a result of people like let's be honest you nick foster so never mind the politics do party political broadcasts make good tv so what we thought we'd do is uh, have a trawl through some of your favourites. I was on Twitter uh, earlier in the week asking for uh, some of your all-time favourites. We've put together a sort of top five. And we thought, well, who better to cast a a critical eye over than the Times uh, television reviewer, Carol Midgley, who joins me now. Hi, Carol. 
Hi, Matt. You okay? I'm oh, very good. How are you? I'm not bad, thank you. So we've torn you away from all the good telly uh, yes. to get you to watch some old party political... Have you ever reviewed a party political broadcast before? This feels like the sort of thing the paper might No. No? I never have. This is a first. A personal first. Well, there we are. So, um... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you... Well, should we just dive... Let's just dive straight in and we'll see how so we, we get your on. expectations alone. We get yes, unpacking them. Um, and we've sort of been through all the, some of the sort of serious ones. We have heard Jennifer's ear and all those sort of ones before. But these are some of the ones that sort of stood out, uh, either for their creativity or because they were so wincingly awful. So let's start with the top five. So actually, 1993, so this is under John Smith, Labour Party drafted in Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. So you'd think, you know, that's pretty good. You know, two hot comedians at the moment. For party political broadcasts, uh, where they basically play posh Tories helping their friends find tax avoidance loopholes. Let's just take a quick listen. Lord Rupert Shuffington Crags, sir. Rupert! <laughs> Brandon Soda? Oh, good God, no, it's too early in the day. <laughs> For soda. Sit down, sit down, sit down. <laughs> now, as I recall, your problem is the little matter of your death. <laughs> How to leave the entire county and associated businesses to Lord Rupert the Younger without those nasty little taxmen getting involved? Any ideas? <laughs> Can't see a problem, Rupert. Just bundle up the capital gains tax and the inheritance tax into one parcel and you get double tax relief. Uh, you just leave it all to me. Just leave it all to us. Double tax relief? I, 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 I don't believe it. Just, just imagine. Oh dear. Seems to have died. Smart move. So that's Stephen Fine, Hugh Light. Now what did you think of this, Cal? Well, actually, I thought that it was, obviously you could tell from that, it's very slick, very well written. But I think it's kind of, for a party of little broadcast, kind of too clever for its own good. Mm. Um, because it's if you were already a Labour voter, you, you've got to think of it, of its impact, haven't you? What's the point of a party? Are you trying to persuade people to vote or to, you know, to support you? If you're already a Labour voter, you'd think, ha-ha, very funny. And it is funny. It is. Um, but if you were Tory or you weren't sure, you might it might just play into the hands of going, oh, there they are, smug lovies, you know, hitting the same old stereotypical targets. Um, everyone's, you know, it's all about tax loopholes for the rich. They make some really good points, especially about, like, the little people are paying all the tax and so the rich people can get away with it. Um, but I, I, I just wonder, if you just switched it on halfway through, you might think it's a sketch from... A bit of frying Laurie and, and not realise. And, and one, I mean, it's, it's it's quite funny, but not as funny as the actual. You know, but some some of the stuff from a bit of frying Laurie. I can't remember why. Yes. I sort of acquired some DVDs of them once and sort of ploughed through it and just adored it. And there was part of me that thought, obviously, normally when you know writing sketches, the the laugh, the gag is king, or it should be. Yes. And if you make a point along the way, then great. But clearly, with this, some, making the point is sort of king. And it became a bit late. I probably thought it was a bit long as well as a, a, it was as too, a well, sketch. It was too repetitive. It yeah. was too repetitive. So there was like four different scenarios. And it, it, <laughs> less is more with Particles of Broadcast. And you, you need to keep it sharp and to the point. And it went on far too long, yes. it, it reminded me a bit of one, which I've, I really struggled to find. I think because it just fell... Anything around 2010 has just sort of dropped out of the internet uh, for some reason. But it yes. was uh, um, in the 2010 election... 
the Labour Party did one mocking David Cameron and, uh, and the big society. And it was a sort of a mum came in. She was sort of carrying, like dressed as a lollipop lady, taking off a lollipop lady outfit. And so I was like, oh God, I can't stop and talk. I've got to go and um, run the army yeah. next or something. And it was a very, again, it was very funny. Yes. Yes. But all it really did was, oh, yeah, that's quite funny. It was like a good yes. satirical sketch. I'm not sure it really persuaded, but it clearly didn't work because the Labour Party went on to lose in 2010. Uh, right, not this is another one from 2010. An absolute treat, this one, a trip down memory lane. Uh, this is from the Lib Dems party political broadcast in 2010. <laughs> I think perhaps, perhaps <laughs> no party political broadcast thrown back at a party quite so uh, dramatically. No. This is Nick Clegg walking among sort of windswept landscapes, council house... Uh, high rises um, with lots of bits of paper fluttering around which have got broken promises written on it <laughs> with lots of sort of weird ethereal music let's take a listen broken promises there have been too many in the last few years too many in the last 30 years in fact our nation has been littered with them a trail of broken promises you remember them fairer taxes a promise broken better schools for everyone a promise broken Cleaner politics, a promise broken. I believe it's time to do things differently. I believe it's time for fairness in Britain. I believe it's time for promises to be kept. <laughs> no sniggering at the back. <laughs> <What? Yeah. laughs> I suppose in and of itself, Carol, this is quite good in 2010. Yeah, well, obviously the phrase doesn't age well was created for this uh, broadcast um, and, we, and the irony klaxon of course is going off with the benefit of hindsight but at the time no one knew did they no one knew that it was going to do his reverse thing on tuition fees and um, have to apologize for breaking a promise um, so we didn't know that so I think in terms of an actual piece of film it's just obviously you can't see because it it's radio but it's just a single camera him walking in his big winter overcoat and it's like, here, here, look at me, I'm stripped down, Nick. No gimmicks, no bells and whistles. It's just me talking to you. And I, it, well, it, it, it must have worked because people obviously believed him mm. because he ended up being in the coalition. Yeah. So as a piece of a television, it was probably effective. Yeah. Um, My favourite bit is that the very beginning, it starts with a piece of paper and it says like Labour... Labour promised to scrap tuition fees or something. Yeah. And that sort of flutters away. So it's like, it's so on the nose for obviously the Lib Dems then went on to trouble tuition fees. Well, let's move on uh, to the, the next one. Uh, number three in our countdown. And actually, this is proper one for pop pickers. A memorable effort for the Green Party in 2015, <sighs> where they put together the boy band that nobody asks for. Uh, David Cameron, Nick Clegg, Ed Miliband and Nigel Farage singing in perfect harmony. Do you get it? Because uh, they're all so similar. Let's take a listen. Do you know what, this is just taking me back to working at Mail Online and listening to this about every five minutes. <laughs> um, I remember thinking this was really smart. It was very slickly done. Yes. It was quite funny. Um, yeah, as a piece of... Was, as Capitalising on getting three minutes on the telly, I thought it was pretty good. It was really good. And it was like sounded... It, it, was, it was very, um, very... Creative and imaginative because it, it you know, obviously the, the, the gag being they're all the same, this just homogenous boy band 
um, lookalikes where they all sing from the same sheet. Then that you know you can put a cigarette paper between them all, and the Green Party's different. I think it was really successful for that. Um, obviously not that successful, but um, you know given what the, you know didn't win that many seats. But I, I think. You know, it reminded me of that. I don't know if fans of Father Ted. It reminded me of when Father Dick Byrne went in the Eurovision Song Contest, and it was that kind of song. And I just thought it was just really clever for that. Well, I suppose what, what, what's that. so good is it was it was a really clever political point, executed yes. really well. Like high production values, it looked great, and actually it got shared a lot. It got talked about a lot. It made the papers. It made columns, and you know. Uh, and it was all people yes. in on the joke rather than sort of laughing at them. Uh, and a catchy tune, which is important, yeah. you know, for um, people to remember. Whereas uh, in 2019, the Conservatives went for, well, I think this was based with a Vanity Fair, sort of 12, 12 questions that Vanity Fair ask. Um, it's a sort of you know, Birdman meets the Office style video. Boris Johnson wandering around the Tory election offices. Um, answering this, these, this sort of weird list of questions and just making random jokes. Hey, Boris, you all right? I'm good, how are you? What's been on your mind today? Uh, well, I can't hide it from you. I've been thinking a bit about this general election campaign. And how do you typically start your day? I tend to get up pretty early and then I go down and uh, take the dog for a walk and dog does his business and so on and so forth. That's, that's, that's my start to the day. Yeah, and on it went, mm. if you thought that was uh, a bit thin on <laughs> politics, uh, it got worse. Um, the, uh, the, the my main memory of this cow was a massive row about the way he made his tea. That he'd, yes, he he put that. milk on top of a tea bag and then oh, yeah. the water. Got, yeah, yes, I didn't use the kettle, did he? He used a, a hot tap. Yeah, um, um, I mean, obviously, this this well, was it effective in twenty nineteen? They was they obviously won a, a majority, so that says it worked. What did you make of it as a piece of uh, telly? Um, again, uh, I I thought it was. Uh, Awful to watch, but 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 actually quite effective. I mean, that handheld camera shakes slightly shaky. Here I am walking through ordinary guy taking the dog out to do his business. You know, here I oh I I cooked steak and oven chips last night. I mean, the desperateness to to appear I'm normal just like you was palpable. But um, I think he was slightly copying the Nick Clegg thing in a way. Yeah. From you know nine years earlier, it, it's like hey, what you see with me is what you get. I'm just a straightforward guy. I answer straight questions. Rolling Stones and The Clash are my favourite band. You know, everyone, ugh, those awful questions that people ask politicians. Um, but look at what happened afterwards. Yeah. It must have worked because, <laughs> you know, people must have thought, wrote, watched and thought, do you know what? That's a man who tells the truth. He's, he's a straight talker. Because and actually all... the thing about that campaign, the toys posted a whole load of rubbish online and all people talked about was the rubbish that was posted online and then people went and found it and probably did reinforce they were getting their message across because people were sharing going, have you seen this? And then actually they were sharing their messages. Finally, though, I think this has got to be my number one uh, yes, favourite party political broadcast. It's the Natural Law Party's broadcast ahead of some European Parliament elections. Their leader, Dr Geoffrey Clements, staring hypnotically into the camera, said the party's first priority was to set out a programme of transcendental meditation and yogic flying, which is where you sort of sit cross-legged and then sort of catapult yourself into the air. It's hard to explain. We'll play a clip, but I recommend you spend five minutes later on today <laughs> watching it. But let's take a listen. When a person practices transcendental meditation and yogic flying, a high degree of integration is produced in brain activity. The person experiences bubbling bliss and stress is dissolved. This is the basis of many practical results in every area of life. 
Through a group of 7,000 experts in yogic flying, this effect of coherence radiates to the whole nation, bringing down stress and negativity in society and making the nation strong, dynamic and integrated. <laughs> it's really, it's a shame that you can't really, imagine a sort of, well, it looks like a room in a sort of stately home with mattresses on the floor uh, and people in their yoga kit, cross-legged, catapulting themselves into the air. And apparently if lots of people do that, waves of calm will sweep the country. Yes. Um, and, and later on, yes, he, 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 he claimed that because there was a yogic flying um, sort of scene in Skelmsdale in Merseyside, <laughs> and um, they claimed that it reduced crime by 60% in Merseyside in between 1987 and 94, which is quite a bold claim. Isn't it <laughs> the level of crime at the time in the eighties? Um, but yes, it, but I thought even funnier was the man who presented that. Who <laughs> he was like sitting in a beige suit, like like it was. It looked like it was. It was. It, he had a Tom Selleck mustache, a beige suit, and he looked like he was made in the Soviet bloc in nineteen seventy two, even though it was nineteen ninety four, and. Um, there was like an, uh, this is what people do when they know when they suspect that you think they're talking rubbish. They try and have an open university kind of gravitas <laughs> about it. So he's, he's addressing the camera like it's a lecture, a science lecture. Um, it had, it had it real brilliant. sort of like open university vibes about it. It was yeah, yeah so, it, it, it was, was incredible. Like lecture. Yeah. Um, um, and no sense of humour whatsoever. Not a scintilla of humour in it. Which made it all uh, the all all the better. Yeah, Hugo Rifkin, yeah. Well, after I tweeted about uh, Party Political Broadcast of the Week, Hugo Rifkin tweeted, never forgot this, everybody saw it, had the entirety of the UK going, WTF was that the next day. Yes. It's incredible, it's incredible. I, I, I've just tweeted a link to it, so you want to go and have a look. Uh, Carol, <laughs> thank you so much for wasting your uh, morning <laughs> by watching all of those for no reason other than a trip down uh, Mary Lane. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.